Hi, everybody, and welcome to the weekly Tulsa World Opinion Section podcast video. And I am Jenny Graham. I'm the editorial's editor. Bobby Set, editorial writer and columnist. And welcome. And we uh, are going to kick this off with the most explosive story, the biggest wedge issue of our time, abortion. So I don't think it's... Uh, I think everybody now knows that there was a leaked document out of the Supreme Court that shows the court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is almost the same age as I am. So almost 50 years old. And, you know, when this came out as the editorial editor, I wanted to see what positions our editorial section has taken through the years. And for at least the last 30 to 40 years, they've not taken a position. And what we've always said as a board is the Oklahoma law needs to follow the, the court guidance, federal law. And under Roe, you know, the state doesn't always do that. We pass all these unconstitutional bills. Well, that might change. And so I started calling around to different, and I need to call Ken Neal. So if Ken Neal's listening, and I'm sure... Ken Neal, who's 80 and a longtime editorial editor, is listening. I'm sure he could weigh in. But to my knowledge, I think even before Roe, there was no position by the Tulsa world taken on uh, abortion itself. So it's always been handled through columns, op-eds, and, and letters. And, you know, I've always kind of thought no one's mind is going to be changed on this because it's been couched in religious thought, philosophical thought. Yeah. And, um, and even I'm, you know, I, I, it's not an, a yes or no on or off black or white. There's so much nuance that it's hard in this political climate to talk about that nuance, but certainly with this right now, there is a political context in the midterms yep. and, and I know Bob, you and I were talking a little bit about what that looks like. And so what, what's your take on how this will play out nationally and even locally. Yeah, so I think in you know these the thoroughly red states like Oklahoma, I don't see it having much of an impact on um, statewide races. There may be a few legislative races and things like that where it is a bigger issue in bluer districts like the one that I live in. But you know, for a lot of the of the South and the interior West, probably not as much of a political impact, but when you get into those purple states, the battleground states, the timing of the, the leak is such that there is a lot of run-up time now for people who want to campaign on this issue. You know, they're gonna say that, you know, we need a federal law to protect um, pro-choice, you know, the pro-choice standard, you know, whatever, you know, what I'm saying about that, to protect the rights for people to have an abortion. Um, and it is something you can make some hay with uh, in terms of campaigning, in terms of fundraising and everything like that. When you look at the midterms, it's usually a bad time for the party in power. Um, right now, that's kind of how it was looking because you're going to see a depressed or until now a depressed voter turnout from Democrats. That's that's up in the air now because there are going to be a lot of people who are very motivated by this. 
It's not saying that the women's vote is monolithic. It is not. But there are going to be people now who might have not been as excited about this election who are definitely going to turn out now. So we'll see how that looks in terms of polling uh, coming in the next uh, month or so, how that looks. But uh, I would say right now, more than in the past, uh, definitely appears that uh, the Democrats could be in play again in a, in a different way than what we've seen before. It's interesting you so, mentioned polling. I'd like to see yeah. more information on how Oklahomans really feel, because a lot of Oklahomans will say, I'm pro-life, but, and to me, if you if there's a but after that, it means there's some choice you're willing to, to allow, whether that's rape yeah. incest. And rape and incest are not exemptions in our Oklahoma law. So if this is, if Roe is overturned, it bans everything except the life of the mother. And even now, according to what I'm hearing from some health hospital officials, there's a chilling effect going on for women who do require a DNC. A lot of doctors are like, are you sure? Are there other ways? I mean, this is, it has a chilling effect. And so I'd like to see more work on, I know that the lawmakers are big on all over the vast majority but we, I don't know. I, I get the, I've always sort of, the last poll I saw was, it's probably been a decade or 15 years old, but it showed Oklahoma being more split. That yeah. when you dig down into, I'm pro-life, but. Well, that, those are important. Uh, there are shades of gray in this, for yeah. sure. Well, and you know, the other report that I, and I put it back out, I wrote it in December, which was Oklahoma collects an incredible amount of data on women who get abortions in our state. And no yeah. one, I mean, it's it's available online. No one write, writes on it. And I was struck that most of the women have had children before. Most of the reasoning are are money, that they're, they're broke, they're concerned. Um, there are some issues in there of forcible rape. There are, in, I mean, it, it it's a fascinating look and it's important look. Now I've had one person say, doesn't matter the reasons you're murdering babies. Okay, got to get past that rhetoric because the reasons are important. Because if we want to bring down abortion, and it has decreased in Oklahoma 50% in the last 20 years. But those reasons are important because we had to prevent it. And that 50% decrease coincides when programs like the, the Take Control Initiative popped up, and that gives the you know, long-acting contraception to low-income fam- low-income women. That made a huge difference. In, in areas where you know, evidence-based sex education programs were given to teens, that came down. When they had programs giving contraceptions to teens for free, it came down. So yeah. we see some of these programs work to bring, bring it down. So to me, that's gonna be, and we have an op-ed this weekend too, dealing with it, one from Tony Lowinger, who's been the chairman of Oklahomans for Life forever. And he talks about, um, you know, that journey and that, you know, there's still work to be done. Uh, and, he, and he kind of said, explained a little bit as to what this, this ruling is. The other is from Laura Bellis, and she's with the Take Control Initiative. And she talks about how this is going to bring up the importance of things like emergency contraception, p- plan B, that we need to, you know, preserve that right. Because there's a real question of what's next. Are they going to go after, um, what's the next wedge issue when it comes to women? <laughs> And I think it's going to be contraception. Um, yeah, that could be. You had a different theory. What do you think the next big? Oh my goodness! Well, it, when you when you look at the draft, uh, 
kind of the summary that uh, Justice Alito wrote. He mentioned something that I thought and many thought was very uh, curious, very interesting, was the fact that there's nothing in the Constitution written about abortion. And using that as a pillar of supporting your reasoning behind your ruling, behind your opinion, there's a lot of stuff that's not in the Constitution. I mean, yeah. a lot. Um, and some stuff that has been very recently decided by the court. Um, there's not a lot of talk in the Constitution about marriage. Mm -hmm. So are we going to start looking at how, you know, who can get married? You know, that's something that we decided, I think, when we're going back about eight years. Something like that, yeah. You know, are we talking about maybe Obergefell being overturned? Technically speaking, and oddly enough, I've heard people talk about this, uh, Congress people talk about this, that same right to marry who you wish according to race. Mm, the loving Interracial thing. marriage is not talked about in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Now, I personally, I don't think people are going to go after that because there are, there's a lot of people who have married across racial spectrums, and it's just kind of a ridiculous thing to be thinking that, Oh, yes, we should codify in the law outlawing that. I think we're beyond that, at least I hope so. But if that's your, if your reasoning is that hardcore originalist that, no, it's not written in the Constitution, so we can't say this is a constitutional right whatsoever. Oh, boy. That yeah. puts well, a there's lot also of nothing in there about vaccines. And so yeah. the same thing that allows the anti-vax movement to get a stranglehold, that's out the window. So, you know, this whole, that whole fight, ironically, would be affected by it. So, you know, yeah. I just, you know, I want to go back and I read at one point a lot of the reporting that was done pre-row. You have to go back into our archives uh, physically and get the old uh, yeah. paper. And I remember Janet Pearson was one of the reporters who wrote those original stories. Uh, Pat Atkinson, I think, was one of them, who was an editor when I first started. And it was not pretty. It was the, the reporting of what women went through pre-Roe was, was harsh. And if that's the world we're returning to, I, I, I fear for that. And I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the plan is to avoid that, but I do think there'll be what I would call abortion tourism happening that women yeah. with means are going to get in a car and drive to Denver or get, get on a plane and go to New York. And the women who can't, they're going to be here. So, so there is yeah. a lot there to prepare for and to talk about. And, but it's certainly not the end of it. Um, but also this week we had some editorials and, and a few, you know, I like all of our editorials, but there are a few that, that stand out. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues we took on was a, uh, it was a story that didn't originate with us. It came from the Oklahoma Watch and the Frontier. And it looked at a contract on the Bridge the Gap program, which was an education program created, uh, one of the five created with Governor Stitt's uh, money for pandem from pandemic aid for education. And he spent, you know, one of those programs spent $10 million to give private for private school vouchers, which we disagreed with at the time. But this other was um, $8 million for Bridge the Gap. And it was to give low-income families 
and I'm trying to remember the amount of the grants, but grants for things like tutoring, uh, computer equipment, mm -hmm. curriculum, and I think that like teaching supplies, something like that. Yeah. So, but what we found is that the contract was completely without oversight, that families were spending it on stereo car equipment, power washers, um, TVs, TV, oh, 500 some odd TVs, uh, it's just smart watches. I mean, there were no holds on it. And this education secretary, Ryan Walters, was in charge of the program. And there were some emails that showed that he, when the vendor asked, are there limitations? He said, no blanket approval on all vendor platforms. Well, that was a real loss of an opportunity there to first have oversight guidance and in supervision. So, you know, the governor has said he's going to go after the money that's owed. The vendor is saying, no, this was the state's problem because the state didn't put any limitations. We're just passed through. But there were some other issues with that contract, too, that it was supposed to go through a certain nonprofit. It didn't. But this is just it. There's a pattern emerging. This comes after the Swadley's barbecue yeah. contract. Same deal. No oversight, out of control spending. But even on the pandemic side, you had we spent how much money on PPE that never arrived? I don't even know. I think it was like five million. Like or five million. Like that. And then the hydrochloroquine. I'm saying that wrong. Yeah. That's we spent you know two million on that. The state on the shelves, a pandemic center that did open, but it opened late and kind of a rocky start. And so the, the governor has been good about after the fact saying, I'm going to go get the money. We're going to recoup it. But it's always harder to, to do it that way than to just from the outset, know that your procedures are being followed because it looks yeah. like the allegations are the state's own bidding processes. And these are all sole source, no bid contracts, but our own state guidance are, isn't being followed. Yeah. So you know, anything. Like, I mean, it was it was good reporting, but it's it's was. frustrating at the same time. Well, it does. It's like you said, it does show a pattern. Um, there are some things I'm sure that the governor will be touting about his administration for re-election in terms of successes and stuff. But there's a lot of explaining to do um, between all of the all of the things that you've been talking about just now. Do show uh, a lack of oversight. And I don't know if it's a type of thing where these are like, hey, this is a good deal for everyone. Let's just do it like that, right or wrong. Or if it's just a lack of knowledge and not learning from past mistakes. Either way, none of it's good. Um, and how that falls out to voters, I'm not totally sure. I'd like to see some personnel held accountable because yeah. through this, it's, it's like we're going to get the money back. But then I would like to see more of this, the systems. Well, who dropped the ball? What's going to be done differently? Because there it seems to be repeated. So I'd like to see more on that end. But the uh, an, another story that I think was was a really good story about that time. Um, Andrea Eager, our reporter at Tulsa World, she followed a story where a killer cop from I believe 1982 mm -hmm. was about to be paroled to the Tulsa streets, and this was a notorious crime back at the day. He stalked this he and you probably know the details better than I do but he had a friend who was in a custody dispute with a woman and he ended up stalking her for months planning her meticulously planning her death he was a police officer he ended up ambushing her after work with a poison tipped crossbow 
and she died six days later in a, you know, hospital in a hospital. But it, you know, this is a guy who uses cop training to try to cover up his crime, then fled. Yeah. It was a notorious crime, but somehow the parole board votes four zero to parole him. The governor's office approves it, and had it not been for Andrea's story, he'd be out. And yeah. the the DA did his job when he went to the parole hearing. And this guy was denied parole in 2013. Mm-hmm. You know, the DA gave all the same evidence. The victim's family said, you know, and this guy, uh, you know, my first reaction was what happened to focusing on nonviolent drug offenders? Those are the ones we want to get off the streets. I mean, yeah. these kind of unrepentant, you know, killer cops. No. So, um, I mean, I don't know what more to say about that. I mean, what... I, what do you think, Bob? I just sort of, I read that sort of incredulous, incredulously and my first reaction was, does it still have people to help him? It was oh, a wild turn of events because, you know, going through that entire process of how it went down, I mean, I would like to know what was in the parole board's minds when they voted unanimously to give this guy a uh, parole. I know he's older. Uh, I don't know if that played a fact. And they said something to the fact that they thought that there was um, another suspect out there who did the crime for Mr. Stoller. Yeah, but that was only by Stoller's allegation, right. not actual evidence, which is what the DA brought up at the parole hearing. And when you look at some of the things that um, the DA's office brought up, <clears throat> this guy was not exactly sorry for what he did he bragged about it he joked about it um he fled the state once he realized he was being looked at as a suspect you know this guy behaved like a guilty person all the way through and it's like you said in 2013 we went through this process and the governor at the time mary fallon said no you know this guy is staying put i wonder if a close eye was being kept on this because you can't treat a murderer in a parole hearing the same way you would treat somebody that was caught with uh, an eight ball or, you know, some scales and some residue in their car or something like that from drugs. It's not the same. This is, this is a different thing. And it's, this was not a heat of passion type of crime. It wasn't like, Oh my gosh, this lady, I don't like her. And just, turns into a spontaneous assault that leads to her death. That was not the case. This was a hit. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what this was. This was a hit. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that kind of a thing, you got to wonder how closely was the governor's office looking at this? And what do they learn from this now? Because we know based on what the DA told us and what uh, the victim's family members that we talked to told us, he walks, if not for our reporting, he's out, and then it's too late. Now, it's, I'm totally stoked that we had somebody like Andrea who got on this and reported it as well as she did. She did a great job. These are really well-written stories, very well dug into. But should it come to that? Uh, no. I'm glad and, and we're here know, to do I it, but... I, I, I don't think Governor Stitt would have released him knowing what, what we know. I mean, I, I truly think he would have, 
kept him in. I think there's some people around him or in that office that, that dropped the ball. And that's what I mean by the yeah. systems are not, there's something going on that's not hitting. It's not right. working as smooth as it should or as it has, because, you know, he's, he's big on second chances of criminal justice reforms, but for the, the drug offenders and the nonviolent people, not for murders. It just seems like when you, no. when, if you're the person in charge of, for the, for, on behalf of the governor to review these things and something says murder on the jacket, well, you might yeah. want to like tag that one. And yeah. like, you know what? He's not going to want to release this guy. So or at I least don't... dig into it a little deeper, <laughs> exactly. you know, because so, so not all murders are created yeah. equal either. And some people do change and some people might actually right. be fit, but the vetting process for that cannot be, it, it cannot be what it is for other offenders. It right. just can't. And the information that was there about this case, it's not hidden. It's all over the district court files. It's all over the internet. If you want to do some Google searching on this guy, you're going to find our stories. Yeah. Um, yeah, this was this was a dude that did not need to be let out. You know, the jury gave him a life sentence when that was the only option at that time. And, uh, and that's what he... They gave him. They wanted him in prison for the rest of his life. Uh -huh. The other editorial we wrote about was the um, bill that uh, Governor Stitt signed, and it had to do with adjunct teachers. And um, I changed my mind on this one. I think the board came around, too, because we've, as a board and, and myself personally, I don't want to put more untrained teachers in classrooms. Uh, I think it's demoralizing for staff. I think it waters down professional standards, and it's not good. Unfortunately, Oklahoma has not gotten to the point where we are so desperate to keep doors open. We can't find people to work in our classrooms. And so we just, we're at a crisis. I mean, we are, all the data from emergency certifications to everything shows that, you know, we're hurting. So mm -hmm. the adjunct teachers are different from emergency certified. Adjunct teachers tend to be specialists in an area like accounting, um, American Sign Language, or a certain trade. And so uh, the law allows for the school districts to approve that person for that trade to teach a class on that subject. So if you are an Ameri no American Sign Language and they want to offer that class, they can hire you and, you're, and you are exempt from uh, having, but you're limited to a certain amount of hours per semester. So the, the idea was never that these adjunct teachers would be full-time teachers, that they would be limited. Like you are gonna teach an accounting class, you're gonna teach whatever. So what this law does is lift that restriction of hours. So now you could have a school full of adjunct teachers and they don't have any certifications. They have no training in teaching. And that, I was against it, but then some of the teachers and some of the administrators were for it on a short-term basis, because in order to get, if we were going to right now try to get a bunch of teachers into our teaching colleges, it would still be four years from now before we'd realize that, you know, teaching pool. So we need a, a stopgap right now, and this will help with that, but is by no means the answer. So, you know, we sort of editorially went along with it and said, okay, we're going to support it, but not long-term, because what will happen is we're gonna have a bunch of untrained teachers. And to be yeah. clear, for people who don't know about teaching, there is so much more to know than just the subject area. 
I know I can't manage a classroom of 30 teenagers, but I know people who are trained in things like Mm -hmm. child development and classroom management and learning styles who can. Those are the kind of things we want. So so that was the other one we went out there, we went out on. And um, we also this Sunday are writing a story or a column and an editorial on homelessness. And this has been a big issue for us. And we dug into it a little bit more. The editorial looks at a specific case that we wrote about last Sunday where a downtown worker was attacked. And I want, and the perpetrator who pleaded guilty and got a 20 year sentence, he had had at least 30 interactions with law enforcement. And it's just felony, felony, attack, attack. And, you know, this woman, I mean, he was kicking her head into the concrete and people had to intervene. This is three o'clock in the afternoon and she's a hotel worker. And I want to be clear that we are not talking about all people who are homeless. We are addressing a very small subset of people mm-hmm. who are being who, who are being failed by our systems. Yes. They are homeless, <clears throat> chronically homeless. They have significant mental health challenges. And it is a revolving door between law enforcement, prison, sometimes mental health facilities, and nothing seems to help. And so turnstile. it is. And I remember years ago, I read a story. It was a national story and it was called Million Dollar Murray. And it, and it profiled a man named Murray. I forget somewhere like Philadelphia or Boston or somewhere. And they showed that he was costing the community. It was a million dollars because he was just in and out of, you know, hospitals and jails. And he was still, and nothing changed. And they're like, this is, and we're talking, this was a 20, 25 year old story. And at the time, you know, homeless advocates were like, we've got to stop this. Well, here we are, you know, it's 20 some odd years later, yeah. and we're still doing it. And again, I know a lot of advocates don't want us to talk about it because they don't want to stereotype all people as being aggressive or being right. mentally, and we're not, but we have to be real that this group, it's, it's not humane to those people and it's not good for public safety. And we've got to do better. And so you wrote a companion column that I want every single person to read. It is so good. And it's a personal story of your interaction with a gentleman who is homeless. And you said there were a little bit in there about you didn't get a chance to put in the column that you want to talk about the process of how that came about. Sure. So a few years back, um, you know, I live in, I live in a neighborhood that is uh, right by downtown. So we see uh, homeless folks, fairly frequently. And just like you said, most of it's pretty benign. Every now and then you do have some troublemakers, but that's the minority. Anyway, uh, I met a person who was kind of in trouble and tried to figure out how to help this person and just kind of getting into their story a little bit and um, just trying to help this young person get back home because that's what he wanted to be. He'd been out on the street, he'd had enough. He wanted to get back home. So I wrote a bunch of stuff out after it was done. I was going to publish it on a, on a blog site that I run, and I just decided not to do it. Um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of don't like anything that could be construed as, hey, I did a good thing and blah, blah, blah. I didn't want to do that. So I just, I set it aside, and then this stuff came up. 
that you're talking about. And I was like, this is an opportunity to kind of use what you knew then and combine it with what we're talking about now and look at how we are not serving these people, these, these folks that don't have a place to go. We're not serving them well at all. We say we care, but do we? I don't know. This was a while back. And when I was going to publish it, I was going to do it where I kept the guy's real name out of it. So I had a kind of a pseudonym for him just to protect his identity. Um, it's been enough years that I don't even remember what the guy's real name is anymore. Um, but I do remember writing this out when it was fresh on my mind, the conversations that we had, um, the interactions we had and everything like that. So it is a very personal story and it's, <clears throat> but it's just one story of many that we see dealing with homelessness, the many factors that are putting people on the street and the difficulty that we're having in actually solving this problem. Um, we've had discussions as an editorial board about how we need to get the, not just the, the advocates and local government officials and law enforcement to look deeper into this, but the entire community, the entire community needs to start giving a dang about all of this. And so far, I don't believe we're passing that test. So when we see the assault outside of that hotel, when we see some of the bad things that I've seen in my own neighborhood, and also when we just see people who are out there suffering, uh, it just kind of shows that, you know, we're, we're talking some talk, but we're not really walking the walk in terms of really doing something to help. Right. And we've, and I think what we're doing is trying to start this conversation and throwing out the challenge that we, we have a lot of programs in Tulsa and some do very well, but yeah. there's just this small group, but unfortunately it's an aggressive um, group. That's a group that lives in their own reality and it, they're not really meant for prison. They're not, you know, we don't have mental institutions necessarily. And even to get someone committed is a very high bar. And it has to do with being an immediate threat to yourself and others, which is very high. But there is a group of people out there that we know where they're headed and what yep. do we, what can we do? And I don't know the answer because then you don't know the answer, but we want, no. I think we can come together and come up with something better. And it's not, again, this is not most of, of people who are homeless. And I think the programs that we have, but they're not working for this group and we've got to do better. Yeah. And so um, I want this to be hopefully the first of several columns, op-eds, I want letters. I mean, we'd like yeah. for this, Tulsa can, can deal with this. We can have solutions, but we have to do better. So, um, mm -hmm. but I would encourage everyone to, to read that this weekend. I just, I loved your column, so. My column is Mother's Day. My mom's going to be very happy. My mom loves it when I write about her, no matter what I write about her. So she has an ego like that. So, but no, <laughs> I love moms. And I know that a lot of people out there don't have a mom to celebrate with for whatever reason, but I just try to encourage them. I get it. I don't have a dad to celebrate Father's Day, but we all have mother figures. We all have father figures. And so yep. on this day, you might take a moment and either, you know, celebrate with your mom, call your mom. Tell her how much she's awesome, even though you might roll your eyes at some goofy thing she does, or just remember those that um, that that did help raise you. So, and I hope everyone does have a good weekend this weekend. Your so. mom sounds fun. 
She she is a lot of fun. She's a lot of fun around yes. happy hour. She gets very talky. <laughs> she gets she loves to dance. I have lots of videos of people. People will send me videos of my mom dancing. It's like I okay. Love it. Your mom sounds <laughs> pretty think, rad. I hope I'm like that. I want to be the old lady dancing on the dance floor to although she's listening to like the Beach Boys. I guess I'll be listening to Nirvana. Will Pearl Jam be like the golden oldies? Are they the golden oldies now? Oh my God, I didn't even think of that. We're 50. Can't dance the Pearl Jam anyway. I can dance a Pearl. I did dance a Pearl Jam. Best concert, one of the best concerts. I went to, I actually can say I saw Pearl Jam in 1993. So. Uh, I'm kind of jealous of that. Kind yeah, we know what's funny about that. Nirvana was in town just like a month or two before, but I couldn't afford the $20 to go. Oh my so God. Go, oh, I'll catch him the next time around. Well, Oops. So now I, I try not to, to miss concerts that um, I want to go to, but, yeah, but they're, yeah, not they're not 20 bucks anymore. I would say I had to, God, the, the, oh man, the U2 concert just about broke me, but you know, yeah, it was worth it. All right. Hey. Well, you have a good weekend, Bob. Anything else you want to add? Well, I would say, um, because I always say stuff about getting outside and junk like that next few days. If you're a mountain biker or a runner, do not go to the trails. They're super muddy right now, and, you know, it'll just do damage. So give those trails uh, at least a couple of days to dry out before you go out and ride. Um, and go visit your mom. Go have lunch or dinner with your mom. If she's not in town, give her a call. Tell her how, how awesome she is. Make her feel good. Um, I know I'll be doing that because my mom is awesome <laughs> and I don't, I've got no problem telling that to anybody. So, I want yeah. to meet my mom someday. That, that's going to happen. She's rad. She's awesome. Well, everybody have a good weekend and we'll see you next week. Adios. Bye.